0: Good morning, family. This morning's message is really heavy on me, um, and I don't really know how to begin. Uh, the Lord has really, really, really done some, some heavy uh, things with me this week, and so I want to begin by just praying. Is that okay? Lord Jesus, I'm so weak to do what I feel like you've led me to do this week. I have nothing. I am uh, powerless. You would have conveyed from from this text. And so I, I just leave I leave this here. And I ask that you take control of today and this message and this final thought from first and second Corinthians. Be glorified, Jesus. Have your way. And any other way. Don't allow it to be that way. Just have it the way that you want it. Jesus, in your powerful and precious and holy name, I pray this. Amen and amen. Today, we arrive at the conclusion of our study of the Corinthian experience. We've been working our way through 1st and 2nd Corinthians now for almost eight months. We began this study on the 9th of January of this year. And the message of 1st and 2nd Corinthians is about making disciples. Think about Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And don't ever forget that I am with you Always, even to the very end of this age, he didn't send people out in their own strength and in their own power. He sent them out in his strength and in his power. And so the first and second Corinthians is not about theology. I've said that before. We try to use it like that. We try to read it. It's not a book about theology. Although we glean a lot of theological truths from 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's not about that. Theology that we see happening in 1st and 2nd Corinthians is actually called applied theology or, or task theology. It's theology in action. Um, and, and it's for one purpose, and it's the, the purpose of making and forming and developing disciples. 1st and 2nd Corinthians is about a missionary who went and preached Jesus and nothing else to a whole bunch of people at Corinth who had been worshiping false gods, looking to fill their need in the world in all of these false places and money and power and sex, position, you name it. Or to a whole bunch of Jews who had rejected Jesus, who were so steeped in religion and self-righteousness they couldn't see anything but their self. He lived with them. He taught them. He showed them signs and wonders. He showed them who Jesus truly is. He led them to Christ. He baptized them. And now he's discipled them for years and has come to love them even as his own children. And is now engaged in the very fight of his life to keep their minds centered in Jesus. To keep their eyes on Jesus. To keep their hearts connected to Jesus in Christ. In faith If we've learned anything from these weeks in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, is that making disciples is not an easy process. Evangelism is one thing. Discipleship is something else. Discipleship begins with evangelism, but discipleship is a discipline. This is where we get the word disciple. It literally means a disciplined learner. It's what disciple means. It's a discipline in following and belonging to Jesus. It's trying. It's messy. It takes time. It's tedious. It's excruciatingly painful at times because being patient with hard headed and hard hearted people is difficult. You have to be teachable to be a disciple. It's all these things because it's not a formula, it's not a program. It's much more than a transfer of information. It doesn't happen in an online class. True discipleship is real, it's personal, it's relational, it comes down to the very heart of the person. It is their choice. You can lead a person to Christ, but you can't keep them there. They have to want to be there. They have to choose Jesus. Over everything else, religion, church, anything that gets in the way, they have to choose Christ. Discipleship is a life and death fight for the hearts and souls of those that Jesus died to save and to keep them in faith and to keep them from listening to false gospels, false truths, false teachers, and to keep their eyes on Jesus. And that's what Paul exactly is trying to do. He's desperately trying to do. And so as we come to this final chapter, the close of 2 Corinthians, we see Paul reach somewhat of a break point here in chapter 13. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's calling for true repentance. He's calling for true belief. He's calling for true obedience to Christ and only Christ. He's calling them out and he says, I've had it. Are you in Christ? Or are you not? It's time to choose. You want to see if I'm blowing smoke here? Because I'm coming. And this is your final warning. And they're like, yeah, dude, you're all big and bad, but you're pretty underwhelming in person. He's like, all right. This is your final warning. This is your final exam. Let's read through 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. I'll stop along the way in a few spots to point out some details. Second Corinthians 13, one through 14. Verse one, this will be my third visit to you. Last week, Alan clearly established there was a definite pattern of things in Scripture in threes. You remember that? And he said three times he wasn't a burden to the Corinthians. Three times Paul said he was afraid of what he would find when he got there. In fact, in chapter 12 and verse 20, he said, I may not find what I want. And he said, by the way, you may not find in me the person you want me to be when I get there. Three times he's warned them. Three times he's received eyewitness accounts of what's been going on. And now this is his third personal visit. And then he quotes a portion of this Old Testament scripture, which is the last sentence of Deuteronomy 1915. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is a matter of civil law. This is the law that God gave Moses to for civil uh, governance. This is god 's command, as it actually reads in Deuteronomy: One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or an offense they may have committed. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three. Paul says, this is an investigation. this is a court proceeding, and I am going to be that witness. I am coming to do an investigation. I am looking for evidence and I'm looking for truth and I'm looking for proof of true repentance. He says, I've already given you a warning when I was with you a second time. Now I repeat it while I'm absent on my return. I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, you want proof. All right, I'm bringing it. Paul is talking about he is not weak in dealing with you. He's talking about Jesus right here. He says, but he is powerful among you. Paul is talking about Christ. Verse 4, to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him. And this is what Paul's referring to in chapter 12 and verse 10. Having this thorn in the flesh, it is in his weakness that Christ's power is made perfect. Yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. We stand behind Christ. It's not us that you need to be scared of. Do you understand that it is Jesus Christ who is holding you accountable? And so at this point, you can see how Paul is not using this sarcastic tone that he has in the last two chapters. He is making very direct confrontational statements. There's no more fun and games. He is drawing a line. And so Paul, in very forward, right here, he's talking about, in chapter 12, he's talking about this thorn And he's like, in in chapter 12 and verse 21, he says, I'm afraid that God is going to humble me in front of you so that I appear more weak than you already think that I am. I believe that in every effective preacher, teacher of Jesus Christ, there is a glaring flaw... That is given or provided in that person so that you will put your faith in Christ and not in that teacher. And I believe that is what is going on with Paul. He is not married. I have a wife who lives with me and knows who I am. Behind every great man there is a woman rolling her eyes. And so you people will come up and say, oh, Larry's great. He's this and that. And she immediately goes all Doc Holiday like tombstone. And when they come up and tell him Wyatt, oh, Wyatt's this, oh, Wyatt's that. And Doc is like, oh, yeah, he's down by the river walking on water. You should see him. I have so many flaws. I am so weak. I don't want to be a strong Christian. Do you hear what I'm saying? I do not want to be a strong Christian. I want to be the weakest man you've ever known. I want you to get up here on this stage at my funeral and say, Larry was the weakest dude I've ever seen. He could not lift his head off a pillow without Jesus. He couldn't preach or teach without an empty chair to remind him it's about Jesus and not about him. I want to be so weak that you look at him and go, man, but Jesus was so strong. That's all he wanted to talk about. That's all he cared about. Here we come to verse 5, and this is where this is. This is this pivotal point. And he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus lives in you? Do you not understand that you've been crucified with Christ? You no longer live, but it's Jesus Christ that lives in you. And in that, you live by one thing, and that's faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you so that you could live. It's His life in you. Test yourself unless, of course, you fail the test. Listen to Paul's words. This is that line in the sand. We're going to come back to this verse, and we're going to spend most of our time here. I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. I want you to see the authenticity of Christ in me, not because of anything that I'm doing, as Paul is saying. Don't take my word for it. Jesus is the one speaking to you here. He said, now we pray to God that you won't do anything wrong. Why are we trying to validate ourselves in your behavior? No, we're not looking to gain honor for ourselves. That's not the point. The point is is that we want you to do right because it's right to be obedient to Jesus. It's one thing to be set free from something out of guilt or whatever, if I have some sin and I'm worried that Paul is going to come over and see what's going on in my life, and man, I shut that off because he might come to the front door, is that deliverance? No. True deliverance only happens when I don't want that anymore. He has changed. He has transformed the desire of my heart. I don't chase after empty things anymore. I'm not trying to fill my life with anything except Jesus Christ. He's saying, choose Jesus over us. Choose Jesus over anything. I want you to obey Jesus. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're not going to preach some watered down, light, feel good, easy to swallow message like these false teachers have been doing We're going to preach the truth. We're going to preach Jesus, and that's all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, When I was with you, I proclaimed to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all I've got. And he says, we're glad whenever we're weak and you're strong. That's what it is to be a servant of others. Somebody who lays down their life for some other. That's discipleship. Where prayer is that you're going to be fully restored. Restored to what? Obedience to Christ. To life in Christ. The absence of self. Paul says he's afraid that these Christians in this church at Corinth have fallen away from Jesus. They've fallen away from truth. They're using their freedom in Christ, their allegiance to Christ, using the name of Christ as a license to indulge their selfish, fleshly desires in every possible way. And his prayer is for their complete undoing, that they would fall flat on their face. And in that way, be restored through repentance. He's looking for true faith, true repentance, and true obedience to Christ. Verse 10, this is why I write these things when I'm absent. So that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. And the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. You may be thinking, well, what Paul is, what, what is he really going to do? What authority does Paul really have? Really? You want to talk about apostolic authority? You know why we don't understand apostolic authority as we read it in First and Second Corinthians? Because it doesn't exist in our day. These guys had authority given them by Christ that nobody today possesses. People claim to have it and what it is is spiritual abuse. It's about control. There are gifts, but nobody has apostolic authority in this day. <sighs> Who is Paul? What kind of authority did he have? Have you read Acts 20, the story of Eutychus? Paul comes into Troas and he begins to preach. And he's leaving the next day, so he says, I'm just going to preach for a while. So they go up to a third story, there's another three, up to a third story, and he preaches till midnight, and Eutychus falls asleep, falls three floors down, hits it, and he's dead. Luke's writing this. Luke's a doctor. He's dead. He falls dead. Paul goes down the stairs, lays on top of him, on Eutychus, wraps his arms around him, and raises Eutychus from the dead. And he says, it's all good, everybody. And they pick up Eutychus, and they carry him back up three flights of stairs. Paul has a bite to eat, and he goes right back to preaching. He preaches another six hours till daylight. Don't give me flack about going 45 minutes. Have you read Acts 16, the demon-possessed girl? They're following Paul and Silas around. These are your servants of the Most High God. They're preaching the way of salvation. He, She does this for days and days and days. And Paul's like, this is getting ridiculous. It's embarrassing. He turns around. She's got this spirit. He casts the spirit out of her. And the slave owners are like, well, now what are we going to do for money? They drag him in front of the judge. And he gets thrown in jail. Paul and Silas are in jail. And Jesus is like, Great! This is exactly what I wanted because there's a jailer and his whole family. You're going to be baptized in about 12 hours. When you get done with that, the people that put you in jail are going to be apologizing to you. And I'm going to do that as a testimony against them. What is apostolic authority? Have you read Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit? Peter does nothing but call out their sin and both of them drop dead to the ground. Who did it? Did Peter kill them? No. What killed them? The wrath of God. And he said, I'm going to use this as an example. God took them out. Paul's authority has been given to him by Christ as a sign. Paul has been given authority to build them up. And Jesus, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, has all authority, sovereign power to excise the wrath of God. And he does it. And then, here's this nice, tidy, final greeting and benediction. Just sweet as you please. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... The love of God, some translations add the word Father. The fellowship or the communion, the common union of the Holy Spirit be with you all. A beautiful, triune blessing of God's abiding presence and peace upon them all. Test yourself, Paul says. I'm sorry, but Paul's emphasis in Second Corinthians is not unity in the church. It's not how to do church. And that's how we've always read First and Second Corinthians. As a missionary, I get asked to come and speak on church planting all the time. And I tell people, I don't do that. Why don't you do church planting? Because if you plant churches, it doesn't mean you get to make disciples. But if you make disciples, guess what you're going to get? Churches, and you don't have to plant them. It didn't say go into all the world and plant churches. It didn't say go into all the world and evangelize. It said make disciples. It's a process. Last time I spoke to you here... 2 Corinthians 11 it was 3 weeks ago I shared my fear and my anxiety about standing up here proclaiming and preaching because we were talking about false teachers and I read James 3:1 Not many of you should claim to be teachers because teachers are going to be judged more harshly and I'm like what am I doing I'm scared to death because I don't want to lead people astray. I don't want to make them stumble. I read to you from Matthew 18. Larry, if you cause any one of these people that believes in me to away from me or to stumble, I'm going to hang a millstone around your neck and I'm going to drown you in the depths of the sea. I don't want to be a false teacher. But that's not all of my problem. I've been studying this book really, really hard for almost 40 years. That came out as a result of God forcing me into a situation where I had to choose between following the church or following Jesus. And he just kicked my teeth in one day, and I fell to my knees. And ever since then, I've been in a dead run pursuing him. I've been trying to ingest this book into my heart and into my mind and into my soul and my spirit because I want to know Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want Christ in me, the hope of glory. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want somebody to tell me what this means. I don't want somebody to stand up here and explain to me what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus said if I abide in him and abide in his word, his Holy Spirit will teach me all things. He will bring glory to Jesus by taking from what belongs to Jesus and making it known to me for the purpose of making Jesus real in my life. Understanding him, I am being transformed with ever increasing glory every day into his likeness. And I don't want to be deceived. I want to become a disciplined learner. And so I'm trying to understand the best I can everything in this book, everything that Jesus says about following him. And well, here's what I'm most concerned about. To put it as plainly as I can, i got a couple of really big fears. One fear is I don't ever want anybody to hear me preach or teach and leave thinking that they have some kind of false hope. Like everything's going to be okay. They're going to go to heaven because they're a good person. Because that's not what Jesus says. They have to hear truth out of my mouth. They have to hear the gospel from me. And most of all, they have to hear Jesus and nothing else. And the most loving thing I can do is not let people go on believing whatever they want to believe. That's not loving. I don't want to offend them, but I don't want them to end up at the end and when it's too late and find out what the truth is. But I also have another fear. I don't want to preach or teach so that people who know Jesus, people who love Jesus, who are in Jesus, feel like they don't. Feel like they're operating in fear or guilt or doubt, like it's all up to them, because that's not what Jesus taught. And people are like, I'll never be good enough. And I'm like, exactly, that's the point. That's why Jesus came, because you can't be good enough. He is enough. And so how do I stand up here and walk that I don't know. I honestly don't know how to do this. There is a cost to following Christ. Yes, salvation is free. You can't ever earn it. You will never deserve it. That's why it's called grace. Salvation is free. But being a disciple of Jesus will cost you your very life. Jesus said that people who try to save their lives are going to lose their life. What does that mean? That means they're not going to go to heaven. He said whoever loses their life will find eternal life in Jesus. They'll find salvation through faith, not in human effort, so that nobody can boast before God because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ in us, the hope of glory. You have got to lose your life to get this. That's what it takes. You can't add Jesus to your life and try to save your life. You must die. And so I just don't know how to do this. I don't. And so I just try to get away from myself and my own words, my own thoughts, my own ideas as much as I can and just read the words of Jesus and let Jesus do the preaching and teaching. Speaking the truth in love about who Jesus is and what it truly means to follow Christ, to truly be his disciple. That's all I really care about. I know that many of us are struggling. I know what you, I see on prayer requests. I know that, that you have marriages that are falling apart. I know that you have kids in rebellion. I know that there's sickness. And I care about that. I pray about that. And I care about all of that. But not as much as I care about this. Because everything else in life is temporary. This is forever. Are you in Christ? Are you not? I'm going to, you're going to, we're all going to stand before Jesus one day. And he's going to say one of two things to you and me. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and look what I have prepared for you. You remember, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. It's all prepared. Come to me. You're my son. You're my daughter. Let me hold you in my arms. You were faithful to the end. You passed the test. Or it'll be, depart from me. I never knew you. For all eternity, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's all prepared. He could come any minute, any second. Everything's ready. Jesus will say, you honored me with your lips, but your heart was far from me. I don't know you. Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus told us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And right before that, he's talking about a tree that you can tell by his fruit. There's evidence in our life. Where your treasure is, there your heart is, Matthew 6. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. And as I read that passage, Jesus is saying on the last day, many, many people are going to come to him and say, Lord, Lord, I, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And Jesus said, I will tell them plainly, depart from me. I never knew you. This is the scariest verse in the entire New Testament. Clearly in this passage, people are deceived. Deceived. It seems that from the language they're going to get all the way to the very end and be totally blindsided. That's what deception is: to be totally taken in, to be totally deceived. And they're like, "Wait a second, Jesus, I thought for sure I was getting everything that you were telling me here." I did all this stuff. I taught Sunday school. I hardly ever missed church. I was raised in the church. I was baptized when I was 10 years old. And he told me, they told me to raise my hand, every eye bow, every head bowed, every eye closed, pray a prayer. I prayed that prayer, man. They told me that was what I needed. What is going on here? And there will be many people who think that, but they were deceived and they're going to be thrown out into the darkness. For they be weeping and wailing and they will gnash their teeth in agony and anguish. These are red letters. These are the words of Jesus. It terrifies me. So you want to know what I'm really scared about when I see these passages? I go, man, I don't even know how to communicate Jesus' words. And everything else is coming out of my mouth because I don't want to be a false teacher where the darkest, deepest depths of hell are reserved for me, for leading people astray. So what's the most loving thing I can do? Do I just go, oh, let me give you a happy, uplifting, encouraging sermon and send everybody home feeling better because we're all having a rough time? Is that the thing that I'm supposed to do? Is that what church is? Do we encourage each other in life's pursuits? No, I don't think so. I think we really need to think about how this ends. Based on only what Jesus said in Scripture, not based on what I or anyone else says. Life is a vapor. We're here a second and then we're gone. We need to encourage each other to pursue Jesus. Hold each other accountable. Where are you at with Jesus? Teaching each other, admonishing other to be a disciplined learner of Christ. I want to be true and honest about what this actually says, because I'm afraid that if somebody has lied to you in the past, and you never took the time to read this for yourself, you may not even know. I'm afraid someone told you there's no hell anymore. That's a really popular teaching right now. They say, how can a loving God punish people? How can a loving God throw anybody into an unquenchable fire, into eternal torment? That's what the world and many, many preachers and many, many pulpits today are teaching. That's popular. But I'm not here to teach what's popular. I'm here to teach what's biblical. What Jesus actually said. What I'm saying is study the Bible. I'm saying read it for yourself. Don't let someone tell you that a loving God has no justice. That a loving God has no wrath. Read it like your life depends on it because it does. Is our loving God a consuming fire? Absolutely. He is. His love will completely uh, consume you. He will literally suck the life out of you so that He will pour His life into you. Do you understand what it is to be consumed by a loving God? His wrath will totally consume you. To fall into the hands of the living God is terrifying. There won't be anything left except eternal judgment, eternal torment. Read this book. Start in Genesis. You'll read about a time when God actually drowned everyone on the planet, except for eight people. Every man, woman, child, and infant. You won't have to read very far. About six chapters. Hey, he says to the Egyptians, if you don't don't let my people go, I will kill the firstborn of every household. Wait, what? You will kill. Yes, you will send a death angel to kill the firstborn of every house. Why? Because God is so grieved, he is so broken-hearted. Man's heart is so depraved. He regretted he ever made them. God can be grieved. He has emotion. His heart can be broken. What am I saying? I'm saying that God is love, but I'm also saying God is sovereign. I'm saying God is holy. I'm saying that God is grace and mercy and justice and wrath. Read this book. And you're going, oh, but wait, you're, you're quoting from Genesis. That's the way he used to be. That's a pretty popular teaching right now. Do we need to just skip to Revelation, see how this ends, to find out that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you want to look at how this ends? Read this book. Jesus is God. The Word became flesh. In these last days, Hebrew one. He has spoken to us in person, incarnate, in Christ. Nowhere in this book will you see people praying a prayer to accept Jesus in their hearts and then nothing else is ever required of them. Once you're in, you're in. That's it. It's not in there. There's a cost to following Jesus. What you will see is Jesus saying, you must repent. Repent. You must turn. You need to be born again. You've got to start this whole thing over again. Unless you change and become like a little child, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to die. The old is gone. The new has come. You must deny yourself every single day for the rest of your life. If you want to belong to me, you must take up your cross and follow me. Jesus tells me that if I don't do these things, if I do not obey his command, I'm not worthy of him. I'm not fit. For the kingdom of heaven. You can't be my disciple. The one who loves me is the one who obeys my commands. Jesus says, Many people will honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus said, Don't just hear my words and deceive yourself. The wise man built his house on the rock, the foolish man was an idiot. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words are never going anywhere, and they're never going to change and mean something di- different than when I said them. That's what Jesus taught. People say, "What about John three sixteen? Oh yeah, for God so loved the world that He sent Jesus, and whoever would believe in Him would not perish." Keep reading. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life and the wrath of God remains on him. Keep reading. Jesus didn't beg people to follow him. In fact, people begged Jesus, Can I follow you? They would come to him and say, I'll follow you anywhere. He's like, Really? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Son of man's got nowhere. To lay his head. I'm homeless. You sure you want to follow me? I'm not sure where I'm sleeping tonight. Count the cost. You want to share in my suffering? Because all people are going to hate you because of me. Count the cost. Don't suppose I came to bring peace, but I'm going to bring division. Following me is going to rip some families apart. It's like a sword. Jesus is going to force people into a corner and make them choose. Look at what Jesus actually is calling people Jesus was honest. Jesus was so brutally honest. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he ends up going away sad because he cannot hang with the cost of following Jesus. I kept all these commands even since I was a boy. Lord, Lord, Jesus didn't condemn this man. He was already condemned because of sin. John three, seventeen and eighteen. He looked at him and he loved him. And he said, How hard it is for the rich. How hard it is, because it costs everything. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, it's like a pearl of great price. It costs you everything. How hard it is to let go of everything you think it's really important. And just come to me and I'll give you rest. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, how I long to gather you in my arms. And Jesus broke down and wept on that hillside on his way in to be crucified. This is a red letter Bible. I want you to try something if you dare to do it. I want you to get your hands on a red letter Bible. And I just want you to read all the letters in red. Starting Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, first chapter of Acts, first three chapters of Revelation, the end of Revelation. And then you get done with that and say, "Okay, how does that compare to what Jesus actually said with every sermon I've heard, everything I believe, everything that I've been taught? How does it compare to what Jesus actually said? It'll take you a couple of hours. What does it say about belonging to him? What does it say about following him? Back to verse 5 in our text this morning. All of that is what Paul's point truly is. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Faith is not the absence of sin. I'm going to say it again. Faith is not the absence of sin. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. What a wretched man I am. My heart desires this, but my flesh is waging war against my spirit, against my body. Faith is not the absence of sin. Faith is the absence of doubt. Doubt is calling character of God into question. Eve in the garden, here comes Satan. She can't deny the existence of God. She's not an atheist. You know why? She's living with him. He's walking through. She's having a daily conversation. So he challenges her knowledge of Scripture. Did God really say? Yeah. Yeah, he really said that. And here's what we do with Scripture today. Well, he didn't really mean that. He may have said that, but that's not what he meant by saying that. What he's doing is he doesn't want you to be like him. He's calling God's character into question, and that is the beginning of doubt. You with me? Paul is in this exact same place. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, Paul finally gets the realization, the aha moment, the conclusion, when Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, don't you understand, Paul? Paul is like, if you just get rid of this stuff in my life, then I can serve you perfectly. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. I need you to be dependent on me, not independent. I'm going to leave that thorn right there to be a messenger of Satan. Paul did not have this before he came to Christ. Jesus did this for him to humble him, to keep him pliable, to keep him disciplined, to keep him teachable. And he says, wow, I finally get it. Grace is the result of the absence of doubt. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. I want to look at this, First Peter, chapter 1, verse 3 and 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, listen to this, that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And where is it at? Have you got access to it now? It is being kept for you in heaven. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who by God's power, you are being guarded. You are being shielded. The NIV says through what? How are you being guarded? How are you being shielded? Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Paul says, Put on the full armor of God. Hold up the shield of to extinguish the flaming arrows that the enemy, everything the world is throwing at you. He goes on, keep reading, chapter 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Who determines in your life what's necessary for you? The enemy? No, he doesn't know your heart. He doesn't care about your heart. He just wants to rip your throat out. Who is disciplining you? Who is making you a disciplined learner? Where does... Discipline begin. it begins with the household of God. How do you know that you belong to Christ? He's disciplining you. Endure it as hardship. He is the one running this. You've been grieved. No, he, he knows your heart. Jesus doesn't cause problems. He allows them. He uses them. He is working all things together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. You believe that? Job, chapter 2, is minding his own business. Satan comes and says, hey, how about Job? I bet if you take all his stuff away, he'll curse you and die. He didn't. He comes back and said, well, okay, how about the man himself? Okay, you can go all the way up to killing him. Well, death is not yours, it's mine. He gets all the way to the end and his wife says, Job, you're an idiot. Curse God and die. All this stuff is happening to you. And what does he say to her? Have you ever read that? He said, you're going to curse God for all the bad things, but you're going to bless Him for all the good things? Job says, they're all the same. Good and evil are all the same to God. God. We live in a fallen world. The very first time that they took that fruit, everything that you've had access is to is not the tree of life. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If I had a tree up here and you're looking at it, tell me which is the good side and which is the bad side. It's awful off the wrong tree. It comes from the same source. Is it a good thing if I win the lottery? In our eyes, in our eyes it is. Look what happens to people who win it. Do some study. Every one of them. Suicide. Their family falls apart. Their life is destroyed because of money. We are looking at things that aren't necessarily good. We're chasing worldly things that we think are good, but they're off the wrong tree. He said, leave all of that. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, where you're going to live. God knows, and He's going to meet that need because He loves you. He cares for you. Have faith in Jesus Christ. Stop chasing the worldly things. Sorry, all that wasn't in my notes. I'll just keep going. In this you rejoice now for a little while, if necessary, because you have been given various trials. When you say the word amen, what does it actually mean? We usually use it, oh, I agree with that. I give that my stamp of approval. It's not what the word means at all. What it literally means is let it be. Mary's standing there going toe-to-toe with Gabriel going, I swear, I've never been with a man, I promise. He's like, it's okay. What's in you is of the Holy Spirit. She's like, this is going to destroy my life. My life is over. But let it be to me as you say. I'm going to be faithful. She moves from doubt to trust. Amen, Jesus. Things go great for me. Amen, Jesus. Things fall apart for me. Amen, Jesus. I trust you. You're doing this for a reason. You're trying to teach me. You're trying to open my eyes. You're trying to strike me blind for three days on a road to Damascus. I mean, how many times do we have to look at Scripture and understand that Jesus is disciplining those He loves? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold... Even though it perishes. Did you know your faith is perishable? That everything in heaven for you is imperishable? There's coming a time when you won't need faith. Tested by fire that your faith may be found. This is a test, a past fail to result in praise, glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. You have eyes to see and ears to hear. Eyes of faith. Though you don't see Him, you believe in Him. Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. Rejoice. No, God wants me to be happy. No, He wants you to rejoice in inexpressible and glorious joys that you have obtained the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. That's His whole purpose. Consider it pure joy. James, chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Amen, Jesus. I trust you. You let perseverance finish its work. You let Jesus discipline. You let Jesus have His way. Amen, Jesus. When you go to the store and buy fruit, you pick it up. How do you tell if it's ripe? You squeeze it. If it yields, it's ready. If it is unyielding, it's not ready for anything. And this is exactly the process that Jesus is putting us through. What's the purpose of all these trials? To be transformed into His image. The only thing I possess that I can actually give to God is the absolute right to myself. It is the only thing that is really mine. It's the only thing that's not temporal. It's the only thing that is eternal. The only thing that God is truly obligated to ever give me is the true desire of my heart. And where the desire of my heart is, that's where the treasure is, and that's where the evidence lies. And if the true desire of my heart is Christ in me, the hope of glory, He will move heaven, earth, and hell to get that done. He will work all things together for good for those that love the Lord. If the true desire of my heart is my own comfort and my own happiness, my own kingdom, the glory of Larry, Larry's image, Larry's strength, Larry's righteousness, he will give it to me. He will give me over to that, to my own selfish, fleshly desire, and I will go away sad because I will fail the test. That is the test that we're talking about. If I try to save my life, I'm going to lose my life. If I lose my life, if I give up, He says, that's when my life is going to pour through you. The purpose of my life on this earth is to achieve one goal. It is for me to lose my kingdom, my glory, my image, my strength, and my righteousness so that I can be transformed into His likeness. The degree to which I hold all of these things is the same degree to which I resist the Holy Spirit In being transformed, I am unwilling. I must give Him all of that, everything. I count the cost so that I can gain His kingdom, His glory, His image, His strength, and His righteousness, His life in me. Have you ever tried to take a TV remote away from a two-year-old? You're chasing after this two-year-old. I do it with my grandkids. And they are so fast. They're like this, and you're trying to grab it, and you're all over the place. I'm a grown man, and I can't take this away. How do you finally get that remote? You show them something better. Poppy's got ice cream. Boom, they drop that. They run into my arms and they sit in my lap while they're eating the ice cream. I just show them something better. This is exactly what Jesus is doing for you and me. Revelation chapter 3. These are some red letters. Look at this. I know your deeds. These are seven letters written to seven churches. Christians, Jesus followers in churches. Not to the world. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one because you're lukewarm. You're not hot or cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because you're apathetic. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. It's all about comfort and security. You don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Does that sound like salvation language to you? Can you be kicked, spit out of the mouth of God and still be saved? Keep reading. Verse 18 I counsel you to buy for me. There's only one place to get this, and that's Jesus. To buy for me gold refined in the fire. You're going to be in the fire. Jesus said they will all be salted with fire so that you can become rich. Wear white clothes. Cover your shameful nakedness and put salve on your eyes so you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Red letters. So be earnest and do what? Repent. Verse 20. Here I am. I'm right here. I stand at the door and I knock and whoever would get up. Make the effort to get up and go to the door. Open the door. You know what you're going to see when you open that? The face of Jesus Christ. And He said, I am coming in. I am going to make my home with you. This is what He's calling us to. To the one who is victorious. To the one who overcomes, who perseveres. The one who is faithful to the very end. I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. He's going to let you sit in His lap. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But there's more. Keep reading. In chapter 4, he immediately shows us a glimpse into the throne of God. The floor is like a sea of glass. The ground is shaking. There are flashes of lightning coming out of this thing. It is just peals of thunder so powerful as pounding your chest you can't breathe. There's seven columns of fire ripping out of the floor. And there's 24 elders and they're throwing down their crowns and they're saying Jesus, you alone are worthy. Take my kingdom, my glory, my image, my strength, my righteousness. It's all yours. The host of heaven is saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Keep reading chapter 5, the Lamb of God bearing the marks of death standing in the center of the throne. Twenty-four elders fall down before the Lamb, and they sing, Jesus, with your blood you purchase people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. in a loud voice they shouted, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Keep reading. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True with Justice. He wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. He is crowned with many crowns and the armies of heaven are following him. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. The word of God and he's striking down nations. He's treading out the fury of God like a wine press. The wrath of God Almighty and on his rope and on his thigh is his name. King of kings and Lord of lords. Keep reading chapter 22. We are given the right to eat from the tree of life. There's no more curses. No more trials. The throne of God and the Lamb are the city. We will serve him. Faith will no longer be needed. Our faith will become sight. We will see him face to face. His name will be written on our foreheads by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony we are receiving the result of our faith the salvation of our souls the desire of our heart is being fulfilled come lord jesus come lord jesus keep reading keep seeking keep asking keep knocking keep pursuing jesus will you will you run into the arms of jesus come now